learning how to rebuild our broken world. The Jews had returned to Jerusalem from captivity in Babylon because God was up to something. God was working. God moved on the heart of the pagan Persian king, whose name was Cyrus, to let God's people go home to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple that had been destroyed by enemies some 70 years before. God also moved on the hearts of many of the Jews in Babylon to join Him in the rebuilding of their broken world. So I want to start today in Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. It says, And when the seventh month had come, and the children of Israel were in their cities, the people gathered together as one man in Jerusalem. So they've been released from Babylon. They've come back to the Holy Land. They've moved back into their tiny towns and villages. They've tried to put back together their homes. And after they have secured things, it says that they gathered as one man in Jerusalem. We're talking about 50,000 plus people here. How could 50,000 people gather as one man? Well, what it's talking about is unity. Now, let me tell you what unity is not. Unity is not waiting for everyone to come over to our side and agree with us. That's not Because that's never going to happen. Unity is all of us moving together to a place to do the work of God and celebrate the work of God. God is the one who unifies us. And so if we all move to where God is, to celebrate God, to do the work of God, then He is the one who is going to unify us. And that's what these people did. They came together as one man in Jerusalem. They were one in heart. They were one in spirit. They were one in their confidence in God that God would strengthen them for the work of rebuilding their broken world. And as they gathered to do the work of God, there are at least three priorities of the people of God that motivated them and propelled them to complete the task of rebuilding their broken world. And the first point is that of atonement. It was atonement, the, the thought of being forgiven and brought back to God that propelled them to do the work ahead of them. Atonement is a biblical word that describes how we as human beings can be made right with a holy God. Our sin has separated us from God. That happened back in the Garden of Eden. Man sinned from God. At that point, we became separated from Him. And that is the reason we have broken lives and a broken world. It's because of sin. Sin messes things up. So something has to be done to atone for our sins. In the Old Testament law of Moses, God prescribed exactly how this should be done. And the leaders of the people of God understood this in the book of Ezra. And so we read in verse three of, uh, 2 of chapter 3, Then Jeshua and his fellow priests and Zerubbabel and his associates began to build the altar of God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with that which is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Then in verse 3b, they built the altar on its foundation and they sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord 
both morning and evening sacrifices. Now, let me talk about the altar that they just rebuilt. In the original temple, the altar was located in the entrance to the sanctuary. So before the priest could enter into the presence of God, offerings and sacrifices had to be made to atone for their sin. So now we're asking the question, why, when they're rebuilding this temple, did they begin with the altar? You would think, I mean, they would begin with the foundation. No, they, they built the altar first. It would kind of be like you going out and building a new home, and the very first thing that you installed was the kitchen sink. Before you laid the foundation or built the wall, you put in the kitchen sink. That's what they were doing. Why were they doing that? Well, the rebuilders understood that their world was broken because they had sinned. And friends, let me tell you something. If we don't deal with the sin problem in our own lives properly, there can be no rebuilding of our broken lives and world. That's where we have to start. It's sin that has messed everything up. Therefore, sin is the first thing that has to be dealt with. God has one way and one way only for the atonement to be made. And that was a sacrifice. Someone or something had to pay the price for our sins. You see, a holy God and a sinful man can only be reconciled and brought together at the altar of atonement. The Bible says that apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And the Old Testament system that God first put into place required that animals be sacrificed. And they must be sacrificed over and over and over again. You can see that in the following verses here in Ezra chapter 3 verses 2 through 6. It speaks of a burnt offering being made over and over again. Why? Well, here's the problem. We keep sinning. And because no one animal's blood could atone for everyone's sin. No matter how perfect of a bull or a goat or a lamb that they had, no one animal sacrifice could atone for everyone's sin. That was the Old Testament covenant. That was the Old Testament sacrificial system. It was provisional. Thank God it would be completely fulfilled in the New Testament under the New Covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ. For you see, in Jesus Christ, all the requirements of the sacrifices and offerings of the Old Testament law were completely filled and ultimately satisfied. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Him, He's speaking of His Son Jesus, God made Him Jesus who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Come on, man. This is good stuff. Jesus was holy. He was perfect. He was sinless. But God made Jesus sin for us. He took our sins and placed them on His body as He hung on Calvary's tree. He become, became our sin substitute. 
And it's through His sacrifice and through His blood that atonement can be made and that we can be made right with God. So, there is no more need for thousands and thousands of animals to be sacrificed. Because the sinless, perfect Son of God became that atoning sacrifice for our sins. 1 John 2 puts it this way, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, our Advocate, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin, and not only for our sin, but for the sins of the world. Woo! Every one of us has a sense of our own sin, don't we? Doesn't matter how liberal or how sinful you are. I think even atheists have a sense of their own sin. Why do I say that? Because that's something God built inside of us. And this is the starting place for rebuilding your broken world. I, don't, I really don't care what sociologists and liberals tell us. Here's the real problem. And if you don't start here and try to start somewhere else, you're just going to stay in your broken life and broken world. The only way to fix a broken life is to deal with the root problem. And our root problem is sin. And there's only way, one way you can deal with that. And that is to accept the forgiveness and the cleansing from Jesus Christ. So my word to you, this is only my first point, but I'm almost finished with point number one. Okay? My word to you today is to turn to Jesus. If you've never accepted Him as your Lord and Savior today, you need to do that. If you are a Christian and you've drifted away from Him and His church, today you need to repent and confess your sin and come back to Him. That's how we begin to rebuild our broken lives and world is through atonement. Atonement was the first priority the rebuilders had. But there is another priority, and that is obedience. Where they went wrong in the first place is that they stopped obeying God. And, and the result of that was that God had to discipline them through the destruction of of Jerusalem and the exile in Babylon for 70 years. And as they rebuilt their broken world, they wanted to do things by the book this time. And I mean this book. They wanted to get it right this time. And so you read over and over again this same phrase. You read it in chapter 3, verse 2, chapter 3, verse 4, chapter 6, verse 18. In accordance to what is written. Then in accordance with what is written. According to what is written in the book of Moses. They went back to the law of God, the Word of God. So listen, church, as we rebuild our broken world, we need to do things God's way. What does that mean? Well, it means this. When it comes to your sexual behavior, just do things God's way. If you do it your way or the world's way, let me tell you, you're going to have problems, and those problems never go away. And you have to deal with them for the rest of your life. Best thing is just do it God's way. 
And you know what? If you've messed up, good thing is there's forgiveness. Go back to point number one, atonement. He will forgive you and cleanse you and will not hold it against you again. That sin can be dealt with. And you can go on and like these children of Israel, begin obeying God afresh and anew and do it right. When it comes to who you date and who you marry, just do things God's way. When it comes to your finances, just do things God's way. And I guarantee He'll take care of you. When it comes to interpersonal relationships and how you get along with people, just do things God's way. When it comes to conflict in your home and disciplining your children and your grandchildren, just do things God's way. James chapter 1 verse 22 puts it this way. Do not merely listen to the Word and so de deceive yourselves, but do what it says. I mean, Nike didn't invent, just do it. This is biblical. Just do it God's way. And that leads us to the third great priority as we rebuild our broken world. It's worship. Now follow the, follow the thought here. Follow what's happening. These people had sinned. They were away from God. They needed atonement. They needed for their sins to be forgiven. That happened when they sacrificed to God. The second thing is, they decided they were going to obey God. And so they went back to the law of God, the book of God, and they did it God's way. As a result of these two things, having your sins forgiven and being obedient to the lifestyle that God leads you to, that brings us to priority number three, which is worship. Worship is a result of having a right relationship with a God that is an obedient relationship with Him. So I want to take you to a worship service where nearly 50,000 people attended. Worship had been a part of this group of 50,000 plus people from the very beginning. When they came from Babylon back to the Holy Land, when the altar was first built in chapter 3, verse 4, they celebrated the Feast of the Tabernacles. Then they worshipped in the middle of the project. When they laid the foundation of the temple in chapter 3, verse 11, with praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And then they worshipped at the end of the project when the temple was completed. It says in chapter 6, verse 16, Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. So from the beginning, through the middle, all the way to completion, they are worshiping God. But the important thing is to remember what they're doing here. They are rebuilding the temple. The temple is the physical, visible force of the worship of God. Now all of these Jews could worship God personally and privately. And you know what? I'm sure they did. I'm sure they were doing that on a daily basis. But what is more important was that they came together to have corporate worship to God. And that corporate worship becomes the center of the life of the people of God. Just like it is for us. 
Every day you are to worship God privately. And I hope you're doing that. Boy, you need that. You've got to have it. I mean, it is the source of an abundant Christian life to worship God daily. So when you get up in the morning, you need to worship Him. At noon, you need to be worshiping God. Before you go to bed at night, you need to worship the Lord. It is imperative. But just as imperative as it is for you to personally and privately worship God, so it is for us to come together as the body of Christ and worship God corporately. Why? Just the way God set it up. And I'm going to tell you something. You're getting something in here today that you can't get anywhere else except at another church, all right? But the world can't provide it. The world can't give it to you because the world doesn't have it. One of the reasons we have Roundup Day. Yeah, so Brother Johnny and I can wear our Western clothes to church. But the real reason is that we understand we get something together from corporate worship that we can't get anywhere else. I want you to notice what worship involves. Real quick. Three things. Our worship involves our resources. There's no worship if there's no sacrifice. We offer our worship to God as, as a living sacrifice, the New Testament says. We give up something as we worship. And you can go back and study worship from the beginning of the Bible all the way through the end. In biblical worship, it was unheard of for anyone to enter into the presence of God empty-handed. If you're going to go and worship God, you bring the best you have. And you sacrifice it to God. You give it to God. What kind of worship is it if it doesn't cost you something? In this passage, the people were giving. They were giving their money. They were paying for materials and paying workers to do the work of the building of the, of the temple in chapter 3, verse 7. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa, as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. It was costing them something. They were sacrificing. That's what worship is, guys. It is. Worship means that I bring my best and I offer it to God. And, and, and understand, I'm, I'm not just talking about money right now. It is included, and it is part of it. But from a New Testament perspective, I bring my body as a living sacrifice, and that's what I offer to God. I give Him my best. Number two, worship involves our service. Chapter 3, verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priest in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with symbols, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. Man, they got trumpets and cymbals and probably drums and electric guitars and everything going there, don't they? They're just worshiping God. They're serving God, worshiping Him. You see, in Old Testament times, the priests were the representatives 
of the people to God. Their calling was to serve God. And they did a whole lot of worshiping in their service. In New Testament times, we live, we live as believer priests. That's what the New Testament calls us. We are priests unto God who offer our service to God in worship. Your service is your worship. Okay, let me say it like this. A part of our worship to God is just sitting in here corporately worshiping together. But another part of our worship to God is when we get up from here and go out into the world and do service in the name of the Lord. I could give you thousands of illustrations of this, but one, one recent just from yesterday. Our, our merge ministry, which is our, our college age and young adult ministry, they've been working for months on, uh, on having Desiree's Closet. It's a, it's a clothing giveaway that they've done now two years in a row. And they've been, they've been collecting clothes over the last several months, organizing, storing. Um, uh, yesterday was the big giveaway. We've advertised uh, through all kinds of media events. And yesterday was the big giveaway in the River Valley where people were welcome to come to our church property and receive free clothing. Some of them came and tried to pay, but it's not, it was free. You just came and, and picked what would, you could wear and what would fit, and, and, and it was free. And this was done by our merge ministry. They, they had over 430 people show up yesterday to receive free clothing. 128 of those people arrived in the first hour of the giveaway, which was 7.30 in the morning. They were able to give for the first time a wedding dress to someone. They were able to help everyone from kids to a recently released felon and a newly saved Christian. They were able to provide for ladies at the women's shelter. And they're still helping. There was just a little bit of stuff left over. And tomorrow they're taking that to the Salvation Army. You know what our merge ministry students were doing and our young adults yesterday when all this was going on? They were worshiping God. They were serving. But they were worshiping. Our worship involves not only resources and service, but our worship involves energy, passion, Notice what energy and passion is put into their worship. Verse 11 of chapter 3. With praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord. He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord. And all the people said, Amen. <laughs> because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. That word praise translates our English word, Hallelujah. Say that with me. Hallelujah. It means to boast about something or someone. It is extolling the virtue and honor and glory of Almighty God. And it was done passionately. It says that the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord. Oh, where are my Pentecostal friends this morning? Let me tell you. 
Have any of y'all been to a sporting event lately? Now, football's big right now. Have any of y'all been to a football game here lately? I, I went to two football games this past week. Uh, one was in the big city of Dover, Dover, Arkansas. Greenwood ninth graders went and beat up on Dover. They, that, I understand Dover had a, that ninth grade team had a 32-game winning streak until the Bulldogs came to town. We ended that one. Then, then I went to the Bulldogs uh, Friday night game. <laughs> I kind of wished I would have missed that one, you know. Traveled up the north side, and we got thumped by, by north side high school. Any, any of y'all north side people in here? All right, Gary, but Gary back there, you got a few championship rings from Northside. Northside is back. Let me tell you, they are back in full force. Uh, the Greenwood side was was filled, so Zane and I, we sat on Northside side. Uh, There's a lot of Greenwood people over there, but we was over there. Here's the thing about going to a football game. You don't get to sit very much, you know? Now, I, I don't sit on bleachers very well anymore, so I have those little, that little pad, that cushion that, I bring with me and, and sit on. But you know what? If you're at a really good football game, you don't even get to sit on your little cushion very much. Why? Because you're standing up, rooting and cheering. Friday night, I had to stand a lot in the second half, not because my team was winning, but because of all those north side people in front of me. They were standing up. Gary, I had to stand up in order just to see. What's my point in all this? Sometimes sometimes when you're standing up and cheering, you get so tired physically that you just have to sit down and breathe. Have you ever been to a football game like that? When is the last time you poured yourself so passionately into your worship that you finally just had to sit down and take a breath? I don't think I've ever seen that in a free will Baptist church. You know what? Isn't God far more important to us than some crazy sporting event? That, that's what's happening here in Ezra chapter 3 verse 11. These people were passionate. They were excited. They were shouting for joy. At least most of them were. Because you've got to read verse 12. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. Now, now why are these older folks, and that's what they were, older folks, look at, look at I'm an older folk, alright? Why were these older folks in the crowd weeping when everybody else was shouting for joy? Well, it says that they had seen the former temple. They had seen the original temple. And so when they saw the foundation for this new temple being built, they were grieved. Why were they grieved? Why were they weeping? Well, they remembered the good old days. They remembered the glorious temple that Solomon built. They remembered how magnificent and how beautiful it was. And this new temple couldn't even begin to compare with the splendor and the majesty and the beauty and the raw size of the original temple. Did you know that change is difficult for some of us? 
And how we long for the good old days. I step over here like I did in the first service. They really weren't that good. You, you had problems back then too. That's what's happening. It, this, this new one couldn't even compare to the old one, so they were crying. You go read any commentary, that's what they're going to say. I, I think there's an added dimension to this. Perhaps they were also weeping because they realized that it was their generation that had disobeyed God so much so that He had to discipline them and destroy Jerusalem and the temple and send the Jews into captivity. Maybe this was just another reminder that they had failed. That's a wake-up call. But they were weeping. They were sad. Remember the prophets Haggai and Zechariah are prophesying during this same time period. And so when we go over and read the books of Haggai and Zechariah, they, they, they are talking about this particular event, the rebuilding of the temple and Jerusalem. Haggai saw this. He saw what was happening. And he chastised these older Jews for their weeping. In Haggai chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? Friends, let me tell you something. There is nothing more demoralizing than you're trying to rebuild your broken world to have somebody come along and say to you, Oh, that's no comparison to the way it used to be. Zechariah put it this way in Zechariah 4.10. Who despises the day of small things? And I think the lesson is this. We don't need to despise small beginnings. It is the start of something great that God is doing. In fact, what I've learned in my own life is you better be real careful how you critique God's work anyway. Yes, this temple was smaller. Not nearly as magnificent. Not nearly as glorious. Not nearly as pretty. It started out small and it went slow. But it was God's temple. And do you realize that this temple they rebuilt some 500 years later would be the same temple that Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to to dedicate Him to God? It was the same temple where Jesus as a boy sat at the feet of the Jewish leaders and amazed them with His knowledge and wisdom from the Word of God. It was the same temple where Jesus as an adult would stand and teach and preach. And it was the temple where the curtain was torn when He was crucified. Oh, it had a small beginning. <laughs> but it turned out okay. So we have the people worshiping. They're worshiping with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Verse 16 of chapter 6, Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. Jason and I decided this morning at 9 o'clock we both love that word joy, don't we? What a great word, joy. 
They were celebrating with joy. Did you know there's great joy in being a part of something that God is doing? And every week, you need to be in here so that you can get juiced up on God's joy. Because let me tell you, when you're out there in the world, the world is sucking that joy out of you. And if you don't come back in here every Sunday to get reduced up, you're going to run out of joy sooner or later. Verse 19, on the 14th day of the first month, the exiles celebrated the Passover. You say, well, big deal. It was a big deal. For the first time in 70 years, the worship of God's people was fully functional. They observed the Passover as the people of God had done for centuries, celebrating God's deliverance. They hadn't got to do that for 70 years. And now they were doing it. So verse 22 comes along. Here's my last verse. It says, for seven days they celebrated with joy the feast of the unleavened bread. For seven days, it's non-stop joy. Dude, let me ask you, when was the last time you went one full day with joy? <laughs> they went seven days with great joy. How could they do that? It tells us, verse 22, because... The Lord had filled them with His joy. Hallelujah! Let me tell you something, guys. That's what I want. Not only for me, but for you. I want God's joy. That's a game changer right there. That's a life changer. It's something the world doesn't have. It can only come from Him. It changes everything. The joy of the Lord. How do you get it? We just learned that. Atonement must be made. That is, your sins must be forgiven. Obedience has to be a part of your life. You must do it God's way. And then daily worship. Capped off with corporate worship. And when you have that formula in your life, atonement, obedience, worship, guess what? You're going to have joy. Preacher, are you telling me I'll never have anything bad happen in my life again? No. No, probably you're going to have more bad stuff happen. Because <laughs> the devil's going to be after you. But you're going to have something the rest of the world doesn't have. That's the joy of the Lord. It's an overcoming joy. It's a great joy. Then, listen to me, then and only then, in your broken life, family, and world, be put back together. Heavenly Father, I pray that You would speak to hearts right now as only You can. We have read from the Word of Faith, the Book of Obedience. Your Holy Spirit is speaking that word into our hearts, changing our thinking, changing our life, changing our soul. May we become obedient to it now as we make our way to the altar and surrender and sacrifice to You. Lord, if there's a person in this room who has never accepted Jesus 
as their Lord and Savior, I pray that today they would come and be saved, born again. Lord, if there is a Christian who is away from you, burden their heart to come home, dear Lord. And for all of us, may we seek to obey you and worship you. And this morning, bring you the best we have. That is a living sacrifice. Speak to our hearts, challenge us, and have your way in our life right now. For we ask it in Jesus' name. I'm going to ask that you stand with heads bowed and eyes closed. The praise team is going to sing.